Welcome to another episode of Translate, Translate this. this with Richard and Melissa. And we are a podcast about language, life, and culture, and the hilarity of it all. Yes, the hilarity of it all. Well, we tried it. We think we're funny. We think that's the whole point. That's we don't need to worry about everybody else. <laughs> we're just having a good time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we are extremely excited today. So for those of you who don't know our format, uh, basically, Richard has no idea what I'm going to present. Today is my presentation day, and uh, when I present, he doesn't know what the topic's going to be. And when he presents, I don't know what the topic's going to be. But we are doing something special today because on Translate This, this is our first ever live guest. We're I so guess. excited. Special guest. And, and not only just a special guest, a person that I have a great deal of respect for, who is incredibly accomplished, who is in it every day for the whole basis of our industry. I'm so, excited. Oh, you should be. You should be right. very excited. We're, we're, and not only that, mm -hmm. but he's a really funny person. Awesome. So I'm so There'll excited. There'll be three funny people. There'll be three funny people. Woohoo! All right. Okay. So let me tell you what we're talking about today. All right. We are going to be discussing language advocacy. Okay. Do you know I what like, that is? I like both words. <laughs> I don't know if I use them both together, but uh, I like both of them. Okay. Well, by definition, language advocacy, and of course, this is one definition. You can probably find several, but this one is a comprehensive effort to serve as a state voice for language-related issues and raise public awareness of benefits of learning languages in order to influence the direction of present and future education. I think you probably made sure that we, all of us language teachers, still have jobs. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly <laughs> Thank you, it. Bill. That's exactly it. So, yes. Yeah, so, without further ado, we have Dr. Bill Rivers, and he is of WP Rivers and Associates, and he also is the language advocacy advocate uh, on special counsel for us for mm -hmm. the Association of Language Council. The Association of Language, I said that wrong. Okay. The Association of, of Language Companies. There you go. I got so excited that I'm like, it's oh okay. my gosh. We're, uh, like, it's, we're like kids in here. We are like kids in here. But no, this this in particular is very important for me to tell the, the listeners that we have somebody that is every day uh, helping our industry be able to de construct all of the barriers yeah. within yeah. what we do. Mm -hmm. And we always are trying to make sure that we have somebody that can champion different things that come across our mm -hmm. industry and, and what we need to do. So I'm going to read you his resume. All right. He has more than 30 years experience in the language advocacy and capacity uh, at a national level uh, with significant experience in cultural and language, economic development and national security and publications in second and third language acquisition research, proficiency assessment, program evaluation, and language policy development and advocacy. He is the immediate past and founding chair of the ASTM Technical Committee F43 Language Services and Products and chairs the U.S. Technical Advisory Group to the International Standardization Organization Technical Committee 232 on Education and Learning Services. He is the secretary to the U.S. Technical Advisory Group to the International Standardizations Organization, Technology Committee 37, on language and technology, and having served in that role since 2012. Bill serves as a member on the on America's Language Working Group of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in an honorary member, is an honorary member of the Association of Language Companies, and a recipient of the ALC Bill Graper Award in 2019. And for our listeners who don't know, Bill Graper founded the Association of Language Companies, and it is our most uh, prestigious award to receive. And it keeps going. Amazing. Wait, Richard, All it keeps right. going. It keeps All going. Right. He serves on the American Translators Association Education and Pedagogy Committee and is a founding member of the Bridge Initiative of the ALC, and he works in both initiatives to link the K-12 academic world to the language industry promoting internships to the industry, to academia, and assisting academic institutions in securing adjunct faculty and improving the curriculum for translation and interpreting in the nation's high schools, community colleges, and universities. And before establishing 
his current role as WP Rivers and Associates CEO, he served for eight years as the executive director of the Joint National Committee for Languages, the JNCL as we call it, the National Council for Languages and International Studies, a nonprofit language advocacy organization, doubling its memberships and revenues, and leaving a legacy of significant legislative and policy accomplishments, including the establishment of the Congressional Caucus on America's Languages, the passage of the World Languages Advancement and Readiness Program, the reauthorization of the Esther Martinez Native American Languages Preservation Act, and the passage of legislation restricting the use of price-based acquisition methods in federal procurement of knowledge-based services, and the establishment of the Commission on Language Learning of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, among many others. While at the INCL and CLIS, he led advocacy efforts to expand language learning programs of all types, leading INCL and CLIS to join the National English Learner Roundtable and the America's Language Working Group of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And prior to all of that, he served as chief scientist at Integrated Training Solutions, which is a small business in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, and Arlington, Virginia, where he founded or focused on strategic planning, management, and advanced technologies for language and cultural programs in the public sector. And while at ITS, he served in a contractor role as the chief linguist of National Language Services Corps, a field activity of the OUSD with oversight of all language issues in the NLSC. And prior to working ITS, he, found, he was a founding member of the Center of Advanced Study of Language, at, which is CASL, at the University of Maryland, and the nation's first federally funded research center for language, cognition, and national security, where he led the less commonly taught languages area and served as special assistant to the executive director. And prior to CASL, he was a researcher at the National Foreign Language Center, NFLC, at the University of Maryland from 94 to 2003 uh, and leaving as the assistant director. But during his career, he also, as, as, no, no, I don't even know how he finds the time to do this. He also taught Russian, beginning through advanced levels, graduate courses in research methods, language policy, and second language acquisition at the University of Maryland, worked as a freelance interpreter and translator for English and Russian, and conducted field work in Kazakhstan, where he regularly returns to teach graduate courses and supervises, he supervises dissertations as a visiting professor at the Al-Farabi Kashak, I'm saying that wrong probably, National University. And he received his PhD in Russian from, and Bill, how do I say that? Bryn Mawr? And I, I think that's how you say it, Bryn Mawr College. And his MA and BA in Russian and his BS, this is fascinating, in aerospace engineering from University of Maryland. He speaks Russian, French at the C1 level, and Irish, German, and Spanish at the B1 level. Amazing. Mic yeah. drop. Is he like 200 years old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. You would think. He, wow. yeah. Uh, on behalf of all language instructors, he probably are God without knowing. That's what I say. Yeah. That's why I was so excited to have him come on the show today mm -hmm. uh, because his background alone mm -hmm. is just, it's just amazing. And, and there he is. And, and that's exactly it, why it, we this, have him. You're reading something that's going on for a really long time. And I was like, <laughs> what a pisser that guy is. I mean, I, it, it, well, you know, I, it just means that I've been doing, I've been working this for a long time and that um, I apparently have, a problem focusing on any one thing. So I've done a lot of different things. So you know, um, it's uh, but 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 it's a very kind introduction, and I'll try to live up to it. Um, but yeah, so language advocacy. You now you guys are going to yeah, start with we some got questions some questions today. too. Well, I, right, the first thing it. I want to know. Well, first of all, you missed the thing where Richard said that you're apparently our language god because for language trainers, you, you've done more than anybody no, that we no. know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I want to know my first when I read this, I didn't know about your bachelor's degree in aerospace. I want to know what made you change careers from that to language. So sure, when I was, um, you know, when I was a, a teenager, with all the the uh, the wisdom and 
and uh, um, hubris of, uh, of being 17 or 18. I thought I was going to build the Starship Enterprise, right? <laughs> um, but I grew up, I grew up uh, bilingual. My father um, spoke some French at home, and he, had, he grew up bilingual, Quebecois French. Um, and I had taken French throughout my schooling. Um, the, the very first sentence that was presented to me in kindergarten on these old um, little view graph things, you put a film strip in, looked into a hood, and you advanced it and made a sound, right? <laughs> Um, you know, the, 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 there'd be a beep on the cassette recording when you're supposed to advance the film strip. Was the focus uh-huh. the and I went home, Papa, pourquoi est-ce que le focus sur table aujourd'hui? You know, why? And it's literally the seal is under the table. It's like they wanted to tap la plume de ma tante sur la table, <laughs> right? Um, which is, you know, the, the kind of the way that language was being mm-hmm. taught in the 70s. Um, and all I can say is whoever wrote this stuff, they were on some good... You know, they, they knew how to uh, enjoy their freedom <laughs> because it was psychedelic. Um, so then I, I went to um, high school and I took Russian. They had Russian at high school. And it was um, a math teacher who was Ukrainian-American. He was a first-generation um, son of immigrants. He also had a cert- certificate to teach Russian. And he had went to the principal um, when I was a, uh, a freshman and said, I want to teach Russian. And the principal said, well, sure, as long as you can combine your lunch break and your prep break and we'll give you you can use that slot for wow. teaching russian which was the principal's way of saying no no don't and mr chalipko being kind of stubborn himself said sure i can do that lose some weight um you know and he we had this russian program which was four levels in one room it was our little one room wow. schoolhouse and the six people in my the six people that i went through russian one through russian mm-hmm. four with all ended up doing something with the language wow. either you know for mm-hmm. one of the three letter agencies in dc mm-hmm. or going on like i did and another guy did to get a phd eventually in russian but so i go to university of maryland it met all the criteria it had a russian major and an engineering mm-hmm. major and it wasn't i was like maybe i'll add a russian major it was uh and it was paid for <laughs> you know yeah. the single biggest criteria and it was paid that's for. great and this is you know back yeah and even and, and, yeah i've got a son in college now so i, I know what this <laughs> is like bleeding cash um, about um, three and a half years in, I had enough credits to declare a Russian major. I wasn't, I, I did it without telling people in the School of Arts and Humanities I was also getting an engineering degree and vice versa because uh, they, they, I had asked and neither was going to let me do it, so I just did it. Um, but then I had um, the opportunity to go to graduate school in um, engineering, graduate school in Russian, or to get a job. I had a job offer in uh, aerospace engineering. And my advisor, my undergraduate advisor, uh, the late Donald Hitchcock, who told me something to my 22-year-old mind was just a thunderbolt. Mm. Um, I can't tell you what you should do. Mm. I, I can't tell you what you which choice you should make, but you should do what you like. Wow, wow. And that completely upended that day and sort of wandering around. It's like, well, I really do like linguistics and language a lot more than I like mm-hmm. engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the engineering hasn't been of enormous help in in my research career in terms of being able to handle large scale statistics and, and manage large projects and so on. And so I went and got a degree. Now at the same time, I was already working as an interpreter and translator. I got a call. I was a, I think a sophomore, um, 1989. So it must've been, I guess my sophomore year. And we had these high rise dorms with, you know, these concrete cells for two, uh, uh, students and students. No air conditioning, you know, and the heat, the heat went on like April 15th um, and shut, the heat went off on April, on, on, you know, March 15th and went on on October 15th and so on. And there's one, one phone in the hallway, right? This is, again, it's, it's the late 80s, you know, we're, we're talking about, for, for the millennials out there, we lived in the Stone Age, all right? It's amazing that we, I don't know how we entertained ourselves, right? Um, much less did any work. So I hear something out. Hey, Rivers, it's for you. Okay, go out to grab the phone. And uh, phone's ringing at like 8 in the morning, which, of course, pissed everybody except the engineers off. We were all ready to go to class. We all had early morning classes. And uh, I heard a, prof- uh, a voice on the line. Are you Bill Rivers? Yes. Um, you're an engineering major? Yes. You speak Russian? Who is this? Oh, this is Professor Melnick. Oh, Professor Melnick, um, I'll bring the problem set by this afternoon. Really, I'm no, 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 no. He was one of my professors, right? He knew who he was talking to, but he did all this. It was very silly. He said, come, come to my office a little early. I'm like, oh, shit, what did I do? Uh, and I, um, so I go to his office and he says, do you want to be an interpreter? Well, a translator. I actually right. said, do you want to be a translator? 
So there's this, uh, so the University of Maryland is about five miles from NASA Goddard, which is where the control center for all of um, NASA's Earth science mm-hmm, missions, mm-hmm. right? And they have all these satellites that circle the, you know, the, uh, weather satellites and all sorts of different um, research satellites looking at the, at the atmosphere and the Earth and everything else, and geophysics and oceans. And so it's 1989, also the era of Peter Troika and Glasnost. Yeah. So you have Mikhail Gorbachev, mm-hmm. who's the, um, the premier of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. And the ruble was still pinned, but there was no floating exchange mm. All of a sudden, there were these joint Soviet-American space projects and money to do wow. them, right? Because the American Congress was, you know, it, we always have some money for space exploration, never as much as, as an aerospace engineer thinks mm, yeah, it should be. Of course. Um, so I say, sure, I, I, there's, there's an upcoming um, treaty negotiation over an, a new satellite project. Would you like to be translator, quote-unquote? Said sure. Well, you know, call this lady here at this number, and she'll tell you when you know where to go and what to do. And two weeks later, um, and she gives me a very brief interview. I can't remember her her last name. First name was Natalia. Um, very brief interview. Decided I was my Russian was good enough. Now, mind you, I had never taken a day of, of any coursework in translation or interpreting, and I knew nothing wow. about what I was doing. The first day I walk in, I'm handed a microphone oh, wow. no. and put on stage between. The, there's the director of NASA, there's the director of the Institute because we just read about it, Soviet Space Institute, to translate their speeches. Oh my wow. God. Did, how, and that was my instruction. How did you not right? just like die mic, right there? Standing there with a the mic. Wow. And I BS my way mm-hmm. through it, bluffed my way through uh-huh, it, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, the, it was clear that the, the, the American had never worked really with an interpreter because he would go on for paragraphs wow. at a time, right? <laughs> I don't even have a notepad. Like it occurred to me a couple minutes in, I bet interpreters take notes. Right. Doing this, yeah. You know, and the Soviet um, space director would go three sentences, boom, three sentences. You know, it was very, very clear and to the point. And uh, so after that experience, I, I may have had an out-of-body experience when I was doing <laughs> it. I'm stuck in a, a working group. I'm at, like at a table, and it's this big. It's like a hotel conference room, you know, but it's on the on the the NASA site, and it's. You know, tables set up in rounds with six or eight people around them, and I'm interpreting and, tra- and translating at the table. You know, handwritten translations. Um, and we were this was like the uh, orbital mechanics <laughs> table. You know, all the different systems of the spacecraft are meeting around different tables. And then at lunch, um, you know, I'm asked to go up to the head table. I'm I'm, I'm a 20 year old college Man. student. You know, what do you do at lunchtime? And go up to the head table and uh, uh, can you can you sort of sit between the two and quietly translate oh so i was doing shushutage oh. you know and then later in the day they i'm taken to a booth and handed a headphone and show how these pedals and stuff operate and switches yeah. and like yeah. and and so that wasn't the kicker the kicker was the end of the day now i've been doing this for like 10 hours i'm oh completely exhausted right my brain is toast i get a sheaf of um handwritten loose leaf paper some of it in english some of it in russian this is our draft protocol can you bring back a copy in both oh. languages tomorrow morning. Oh. Now, how did this happen? This happened because, and, and so I do all this, um, there are two more days of work. I submit an invoice. At least I knew enough to submit an invoice. Like, how am I going to get paid? But, you know, my, my mother told me you got to submit an invoice. And so I filled out a rudimentary invoice, you know, on a typewriter mm-hmm. um, with a carbon. So I had a okay. and sent it off. And uh, two weeks later, the check comes in the mail. And a week after that, it bounces. Oh, <laughs> no. You know, again, it's it's the Stone Age, boys and girls. There's no ACH going on here, right? There's no there's no app to take a picture of your check and deposit it sitting in the right. comfort of yeah. your, your right. home. Um, so then I, it bounces, and I, I go to the address on the check. Uh, they've moved and left oh, no forwarding address. No. <laughs> so so I, it was like a microcosm of all of the bad stuff, all the crap yeah. that can happen to me. An unscrupulous industry, an unscrupulous agency, um, completely untrained and exploited independent contractor, oh although I thought what I was making was $200, $200 a day, which was probably still a fraction of what the real rate should have been for conference right, interpreting at that right. level. But I thought for, you know, 20 years old, 1989, and they fed yeah, me, yeah, you know, yeah. breakfast was all you oh, can eat. Man. You know? So, but that started and I did that for another, I did that for another seven years. So I, I went to another professor of mine. But you got paid um, for the next Dick seven Brown. years though, right? Um, you got, you got paid Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. I made sure. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm telling him this, telling him this tale of of woe, and he looks at me and says, "Bill, you're an idiot." <laughs> I'm 
Okay. Why? Um, Professor Brecht, you're not the first nor the last who's ever said that. <laughs> um, hasn't been said yet to me today, but I'm sure it will at some point. So you need to go learn something about translation and interpreting. You could take my class. Mm -hmm. And he actually taught a very good translation class. This is, again, 1989. Yes. So nobody's got a translation yeah. memory yeah. and nobody's using cat no, here. No. Um, and then eventually, you know, he said, why don't you go join the ATA, which I did um, a, a couple of years later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was sort of the, the entry into that. Now, in the meantime, the reason I got out of it um, was in part that the rates collapsed. And I was in a very lucrative niche because in the late 80s, there were very few people who could do any kind of um, technical or legal work right. in Russia. Right. There were a few expatriates who were mostly quite quite a bit older by that time. And then the wall falls and the Soviet Union mm -hmm, falls, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden there are tons of not just highly qualified, but super well-trained mm -hmm. and super experienced interpreters and translators from the former Soviet Union. And that market, you know, the rates the rates went down everywhere as tools came online and as, as throughput, you know, throughput increased. Mm -hmm. But I did that for, you know, till I guess 95 when I went off to get a PhD. Yeah. And, and and I had always ended up being a um, an academic, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not ever really a professor. I got into um, the think tank, the National Foreign Language Center, and then after 9-11, co-founded the Center for Advanced Study Language, which was a castle, which was a uh, NSA-funded um, university-affiliated research mm -hmm. center, national mm -hmm. lab for language um, cognition and national security. One of my major responsibilities there was overseeing the translation and interpreting um, research thread. And that was a significant amount of work, as you can oh, imagine, yeah. um, especially after 9-11. Yeah. We had a lot mm -hmm. of projects on how do we improve testing, training, and, and you know, analysis. Um, how do we improve workflows? How do we better integrate um, you know, language technology right. into those workflows and things like and, that? And, you know, and for our listeners. The, and then I did advocacy. And then, well, I was going to say, for our listeners also. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, sorry. no, sorry to cut you off here. But for our listeners, I want people to understand that one of the things that language advocacy also has to uh, deal with um, in anybody that is working in this realm like, like Bill is. So people assume like what you're talking about. People assume you could just pull somebody bilingual off the street and say, here, you can interpret, you can translate. And it doesn't matter if they have any background. And as we've all just listened to, it's, it's exhausting work. It's, it's highly trained work and not anybody can just do it. Even if you happen to speak a second language, because you have to be able to write and, and uh, speak well in a second language, not and, and think in that other language and know the nuances of language. And then on top of it, like you saying, this is the stone age before we had all these computer aided tools, the cat tools he was speaking about to help with translation. And we didn't have uh, online and even just till, till recent, you know, we didn't have a lot of video remote and telephonic interpreting that was incredibly successful and nationwide. And so these are the things it, during the late eighties, even though it, you know, for the younger listeners, or even people our own age listening, um, it doesn't sound like it might have been that long ago, but in terms of our industry, the technology was just not there. So for you to have done this, uh, and then, you know, of course, you go on to get your PhD, but to have that base and that experience, like you said, to see the negative side of the industry, that, that must have really uh, changed your perspective on moving forward on what you would have liked to have seen differently. Well, I mean, it was... Um for it was twenty. I was twenty years old. So what perspective did I have on anything really? True. Um, and I look at my own son. He's nineteen now, and, and you know he's he's full of moxie and brio and confidence and a bit of swagger and like yeah, I was I was like that. And as an adult, you look at that and say, yeah, <laughs> I guess you needed it. Yeah, yeah. Right? You do. Um, it, it didn't phase me at all. You know, I fell into something as yeah, bilingual grabbed off the street. You know, and, and that bilingualism is the absolute prerequisite for the work. Mm -hmm. You can't do it without knowing two languages to a fairly high level. You can try. A very high level. <laughs> but the fact that, that translation, interpreting, uh, language teaching are in and of themselves skills mm -hmm. and, and cognitive constructs mm -hmm. that are quite difficult. I mean, if you've ever taught a classroom and it's Thursday mornings, six weeks into the semester, and like nothing is there. It's eight in the morning. They're all tired, you know, because mm -hmm. at least the University of Maryland, a lot of them are working, you know, two yeah. jobs to put themselves through school. Yeah. And nothing is clicking. Nothing is working. You know, you're, you're not holding their interest. They want to be anywhere 
they actually want to be either back in bed or you know having a nice cup of coffee mm-hmm. so somewhere slowly waking up and how do you reach you know how do you reach them right mm-hmm. and that's a separate I mean, it's a whole there, there's there's real um there's a lot of science behind all of these things translation interpreting yeah. um, teaching localization translocation etc there's a lot of of subtlety in art too as well and i think mm-hmm. that's why you know as much as like when bill wood the first um the late bill wood ds interpreting founder mm-hmm. at the first interpret america said you know interpreters who are not going to be replaced by technology but interpreters who refuse to learn how to use technology mm-hmm. will be yes. replaced and yosechi um said something very similar about 20 years mm-hmm. ago um in a keynote panel at ata mm-hmm. in the early aughts in the same exact thing when people were bemoaning the use of computer um assistive mm-hmm. translation you know much less now where we have neural you know neural mt and deep deep neural mt engines that can do a lot of the the basic mm-hmm. work for us but yeah so even then it's a, it's still there's an essentially an absolute requirement for most use cases right. in translation localization for a human to be not just in the loop exactly and and when you look at the use of neural machine translation most of the um these very complex algorithms do a bad job with negation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right was he there or not right mm-hmm. that is it's a coin toss in some of these systems right, right. Um, they do a bad job with gendered third-person pronouns and third-person possessives, exactly. which work very differently even in, in Russian. The gender of the, gender of the possessive, there, there is no gendered third-person possessive, but in, in, uh, in French, it, it agrees mm-hmm. with the noun, not with mm-hmm. the subject, mm-hmm. uh, not with the pronoun or the subject in sentence. It agrees with the, the, the gender of the object. And that can cause enormous confusion, just for, as an example. And those are well-publicized. Right. The other thing that um, NeuralMT does that it is absolutely true that in high, highly dense um, language pairs with lots of data, language pairs with lots and lots mm-hmm. of data, it'll produce fluent output in a relatively restricted set of domains because of where the data come mm-hmm. from. You know, when you go back all the way to the creation of the first um, stochastic machine translation programs in the late 90s, they worked on the Canadian parliamentary corpus mm-hmm. and then on the European parliamentary corpus. So you're not talking, you know, it's a fairly limited um, domains and it's a fairly formal register. When you get into less well-resourced languages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you get all sorts of weird things can happen, right? Right. Even with good neural MT systems. So that's one issue. And the second issue is if the vectors don't, if the system can't solve a particular vector, mm-hmm. it will often skip. Right. And that means you can have gaps mm-hmm, in text. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, if you don't have a human who understands both of those texts, both of those cultural contexts, both of those languages, and at least look at it and say, whoops. Right. Oops, right. Yeah. yeah. Because then um, you end up with these blank pieces and you have to have that human to fill that in. So, so all that's by way of saying that the, the technology, um, has been amazing. And, and watching this industry pivot, um, especially for mm-hmm. remote interpreting, in roughly May, June mm-hmm. of 2020, everything collapsed right. in March. Um, and by the summer, a lot of our interpreting companies were billing at or above where they were at that point in 2019. Yep. And the reason for that was we were able to pivot. Mm-hmm. If, it, if this had happened five years ago, I think a lot of companies would have been wiped oh. out. And a lot of interpreters would be doing something else for I a agree. living now because the technology yeah. wasn't yeah. ready. Well, know? I completely agree with and, that because, I mean, and when, go when, ahead. Well, when it, you know, so it comes to language access um, you know, and advocacy. So, right. So I'm really here to talk about advocacy, right. not to tell yeah. stories about No, no, no. Which, but we're going to talk about you know, all um, of it because I have some questions about advocacy. Yeah. Okay. Well, go ahead. Go ahead and finish your thought. And then, and then I'm going to ask a big, big right. whopper. So in, among us lobbyist types, there's a saying that uh, – the data make us credible. The stories make us memorable. And what we have in the language industry are just tremendous stories. And it actually makes makes it much easier to advocate. And, and my role is really to help people um, advocate for themselves. You know, I'm paid when I'm when, one of the other points that, that I know Melissa's heard me say before. In the United States, the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees everyone the right to petition the government. Or redress of grievance, to ask our elected officials and their appointed people to do their jobs, to take actions on our behalf. And when you do that, you are advocating. You're not lobbying. When you're, when you're standing up to 
the, the town council, the school board, the state legislature, the Congress, and asking for something, you are advocating. When I'm paid to help you do that, then I'm a lobbyist. So that's that's the distinction. And sometimes lobbyists get uh, there's a you know some connotations of that that can be unpleasant. There's also a distinction between the you know the big time K Street lobbyists, guns for hire, who take any client on, which you know it's maybe a little unfair to paint in that way, um, and the people who do lobbying like me on behalf of a trade a trade council or on behalf of a, a particular issue. In the end, the reason that you have someone like me involved is that you think about the average member of the House of Representatives. They have five staffers, five or six. They have to vote on any everything under the sun. Uh, it might be gun control and then fisheries policy and then our border with, with Canada and then national defense and then, you know, and, and, and. No one person can ever master all of the things they, they need to, to vote on, nor can their staff. So they rely on on the citizenry and people like me who help, you know, who help groups like the ALC. They rely on us to give them information, to give them ideas. Um, we're not, but, you know, ALC and as an organization and WP Rivers as a company, we're not doing the kind of lobbying that's going to bring thousands of votes in or tons of campaign cash into somebody's coffers. That's not, we're not that kind of lobbying. You know, this is very much, we have the power of moral suasion. We have the story that we tell about how our industry benefits national security, economic growth, and social justice, right. and we go tell that story. And the technology mm-hmm. is totally a part of it. That's how I got to this. To exactly. So maybe I should bring this back to advocacy. Let's see if I can do that. Right. Eh, maybe not. No, no. It's it's fascinating because I think for for our listeners, I think and I you know for Richard who has had less experience uh, listening to you speak and and working with you, you know this is newer information for him. And I'm sure you right. have you might have some questions. I to, do. Go ahead. Do. Go ahead. Well, the thing I keep keeps coming into my head and listening to your bio, it really seems like you have a lot of passion. And passion is a big word for me in working. Where does your passion come from that you keep moving forward in this so, and, um, and pushing this agenda? I don't rightly know. And, and I say that advisedly. Having always had more than one language in my head, when I came to the U.S., I was born in Germany. My parents were stationed there. I come here as a toddler. And I had, you know, German and English as a toddler. I remember my patient, elderly yeah. Irish grandfather looking at me and befuddlement when I was answering him in German to his questions, you know, <laughs> one of my first memories, actually. And, and, <laughs> and so I don't, I have always had the sense of standing in multiple places at once, acknowledging, of course, that I'm primarily a, a white cisgender, right. nominally Christian American male and all of the, all of the, you know, world historical privilege that accords me. Okay. But nevertheless, having having these other <laughs> cultural places to stand and these other ways of thinking, and as I've added languages right. and, and having really two languages at professional level in French and Russian, and having um, you know several other languages at sort of an intermediate uh, to advanced level, it, it it's mm-hmm. it's part of my identity and it's actually part of well, I... on on the scale of the whole world. Right. Rather a lot, uh, rather a large percentage mm-hmm. of the world is bilingual and multilingual. Often out of necessity, right? And so in the U.S., it's it's right. for for the Anglophone American, it's a choice, and and I I have an, an, a deep understanding and, and not even understanding. It's an essential part of my being that I have this this identity as being bilingual and multicultural, even though I don't look it. Um, right. And right. and I see the the intrinsic value of that as. As yes. part of my mm-hmm. character, as part of my being, there are a lot of extrinsic values mm-hmm. to it, right? Um, if you're bi, right. yes. if you're bilingual, right. adult bilinguals, um, they mm-hmm. uh, the average age of the onset of the symptoms of dementia is delayed by four years. <laughs> Sign me up. Mm-hmm. I'm 53. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, yeah. I, I see yeah. that shit on the horizon. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, Lauren. I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, uh, you know, bilinguals make more money than monolinguals in the same line of work, mm-hmm. right? Um, Bilingual kids graduate at higher rates, get better grades, mm-hmm. go to college at higher rates, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all extrinsic things, that, you know, that help yeah. make the case, mm-hmm. especially to monolingual listeners, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, investing in language services up front in the design of your of your product or service rather than at the downstream mm-hmm. end at the point of sale 
mm-hmm. provides an enormous right. ROI, orders mm-hmm. of magnitude, you know, more. You know, every dollar was, um, I, I don't know if it was Apple or somebody else, broken. They spent every dollar they spent on localizing their their products for you know the Chinese market or or the mm-hmm. European market was returned you know a dozen times over, right? Um, right. That that all of those are extrinsic factors that we can say this is the value mm-hmm. of language as a the type of human capital as an activity, the value of the language industry. There's an intrinsic value at, at, for, at the individual level, but it's also as, mm-hmm. as an industry, we make the world a better place. We make the world a better Absolutely. place. And that is, Absolutely. It's, it is, I don't want to say it's unique because there are probably other industries that do this as well, but it is mm-hmm. relatively rare You know that, that pretty much everything we touch is, and everything we do is for the greater good. Well, That's I awesome. want to just jump in there, and, and Richard, I know we're both chomping at the bit yes. to, to scream the word out, but go ahead. No, just, you say it. Well, you, you like us, are a TCK. You, you know are a third culture kid, man. Third culture uh-huh. kid. And that, and that exact definition about making the world a better place and having the empathy and the passion that you have, that is exactly a characteristic of third culture uh, uh, cr- and, and what you are, which is an adult third culture kid. The way that you, you know, were born here, raised there, speak all these other languages, have all these experiences that have molded who you are. And now you have passion for the language industry because you've lived it and understand it, but also recognize the fact that we in the industry who are also TCKs um, do bring good to the world, make it a better place, have empathy, push the, the agenda to have a better life and and all the other extrinsic things but your the intrinsic part we were we just did an episode yes. on this and, and you'll hear it coming out but we were talking about uh, TCKs in a three-part episode and and I kept going back to the word empathy you know mm-hmm. and I know Richard's talking about passion but what you're talking about is empathy, empathy right. and uh, you just can't get away from that mm-hmm. when when you're in that unique situation and like you said Bill you can't just bilingualism is the number one key for being in this industry. Yeah, what resonated with me with your answer is the when you talked about your formative years, what happened when you were a kid. To me, that it defines um, third culture kids because the other kids don't have that when mm-hmm. they were young. No. So um, it really makes sense to me where your passion and your empathy comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Then the next question, because I was going to ask you if you were a natural polyglot, but maybe it's because you were raised in different places and have these experiences, or do you just find that na- that languages come easier for you? It's a chicken and egg question, right? And it's actually in my bio there is that one throwaway line about third la- third language acquisition, where I did a lot of research. Right. Mm-hmm. Knowing two languages, you know, if you know two languages to a pretty high level of proficiency, makes learning additional languages much easier, and that's because mm-hmm. It may be like going from French to Spanish or mm-hmm, Spanish mm-hmm. to Portuguese. There's mm-hmm. a lot of transfer, you know, shared vocabulary, very similar, you know, grammatical systems. Um, but even then, there are there are structural changes brought about in the brain, mm-hmm. um, in particular in an area called the anterior anterior cingulate corpus that controls attention and uh, t- your 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 management of your time, mm-hmm. management of your attention. And that's a much stronger region in bilinguals. It's actually quite bigger and has a lot more blood flow and more neurons. And the hypothesis is that these structure, these changes like that and um, the sort of redundant neural networks that are built around vocabulary categories make it easier to acquire additional languages. Right, right. I don't know that there's anything like a natural polyglot. You could talk to like Michael Lerard, who's written mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, a journalist who covers this, covers the space. And, okay you know much more interesting than i am um, <laughs> i don't know i mean it's easy it's easy to pick up a few words or phrases sure. in a bunch of languages like i can say hello thank you and i would like a beer in probably 20 languages <laughs> which is a really important thing to be able to <laughs> notice <laughs> 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 exactly exactly right you know um but but to actually be able to hold um a meaningful conversation or to stand up in front of a, a crowd, uh, students or colleagues, and right. and give a talk. That's that's a much different level of right. of time and attention. Right. One of the myths, persistent myths about learning language is only kids can do it. Well, mm-hmm. yes. There's a reason we have that myth. You know, first off, if you have kids of your own, you'll notice their first five to their first three to five years are spent 
learning how to get their needs met, learning how to communicate yes. with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these large beings around them, mm-hmm. right? And even, and it takes roughly seven years, plus or minus a bit, depending on the kid and the language involved, right. for, for a child to master all of the basic grammatical concepts mm-hmm, right. in the language. And then some of us spend the rest of our lives trying to improve our communication skills in our native language, right? right? It's like, but you, you don't, you don't remember how hard it was to learn your first language because mm-hmm. you don't remember being a toddler very much. Once you are past this critical period in early adolescence, it can be a little harder if you are a monolingual to acquire native-like phonology, pronunciation mm-hmm. in a second language. A little harder. Mm-hmm. It takes more work. Mm-hmm. If you have two languages, there's a lot of that, a lot of evidence. If you're bilingual before you hit basically mm-hmm. mid-puberty. Yeah then learning additional languages is going to be easier because your brain is wired to expect some differences. Mm-hmm. Like that R mm-hmm. in English mm-hmm. or yeah. that R in Quebecois French right. is right. going to be different from the R in Parisian French, that oh, yeah. versus the R, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. front or back, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's in certain East Asian languages, the R and the L are actually kind of in between, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's why that's a common, it's a common trope. You know, people make fun of East Asian accents and people mispronouncing their L's and the R's because in, I can't remember if it's Korean or Chinese. There's only one, and it's mm-hmm. it's in between mm-hmm. the two sounds that we have. Right. You know, but if you are multilingual at an early age, bilingual at an early age, you can your brain is has an easier time resetting these parameters. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. That's a long way to rant. So no, I'm not a natural bilingual. I've worked really hard in all of my languages. You know. Um, Good. <laughs> and and I see that uh, you know I I, I um. Was recently had some correspondence in French with some colleagues, and like, oh man, it's so full of mistakes. Just you know, oops, oops, oops. Oh. You know, it's like spell check. Oh, do not rely on, do not rely on spell check. <laughs> I know. Not in any language. Oh, I not know. in any language. I know. You know, um, or even in I. You know, it's just I just put it down to the fact that I got straight F's in typing in, in junior <laughs> high school, and, and I'm still a terrible typist. But but in all honesty. It's, I I enjoy it's like there's I find this just visceral pleasure in learning another language. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's kind of like a hobby, like learning Irish, which is my current project. Okay, wow. that is it's it's I have relatives in the far west of Ireland who yeah. are native speakers of Irish. What what They're what area? By, what area? Um, uh, the the Hochuinia, the the ring of the the Dingle Peninsula. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, okay, of... that's what I was thinking. You know, my best friend from high school moved to Dingle. She lives in Dingle with her husband. He's wow. a chef. And yeah. they and they live there now. So you go over the mountains. Love it. And you go over the mountain from the, from Dingle into Dunquin and and Anvatine, Valley Ferreter and um, um, Valley David, which is actually Valley uh, um, Nanal. Um, they're all of those. That is a like a completely Irish speaking area. Wow. It's not going to yeah. get me a job. I'm yeah. only travel there infrequently. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. could. Do I need? Do I need it to get around? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is. It's opened up another literature to me it's opened up another way of thinking about the world wow wow um, yeah. Fascinating. and the the enormous vocabulary in that part of ireland mm-hmm. describing anything related to the weather uh-huh. particularly rain uh-huh. and <laughs> the sea you know oh uh, yeah <laughs> right Many and, ways and, to describe and, it. and and to me that's it's like that's the you know so i come at there are a lot of people in the industry who are not themselves linguists who are great advocates for the industry mm-hmm. wonderful people yeah right but I do come at it this from a, a different place where, yeah, or somebody like Kathleen Diamond, who grew up bilingual, for example, um, right. and added additional languages. This is, it is part of who I am mm-hmm. that is, that has led me into this work. Right, right. And so on that, uh, you know, going back to advocacy and about uh, the things that are going on in our industry, I want to make sure that we address some of that as well while we have you here. I want you to express to our listeners what is the the biggest issue that we're facing right now in the United States government or maybe you have something you think on a global level that people should know about that is uh, either a, a bill that's been introduced or a law that's been introduced that you are either fighting or advocating uh, acceptance for um, is there something that you're really in in that realm super passionate you're fighting right now yeah so so um most of what we do has been i'd like to think most of what we do is actually positive fighting for things but in point of fact the last three years or so at especially at the state level um, we've been fighting laws that make it very difficult to classify our workforce as independent 
independent contractors as opposed to um, regular employees. And I've got a bunch of calls this afternoon on an effort in Oregon and, and an ongoing effort in California to try and push back against some of the things that uh, have been forced upon us. We're fighting. There's sort of two issues on the table right now. Um, two, there are a number of lower priority issues that we're also working on, but the two highest priorities are, on the one hand, worker classification and the attempts by various Democratic state legislatures, as well as the Democrats in Congress, to basically make anybody who does any work for anybody anywhere in the United States an employee as opposed to an independent contractor, making it much more difficult to classify um, workers as independent contractors. That is extremely bad for our industry. As mm -hmm. we as we know, it's 80% at least of the translation and interpreting workforce are independent contractors. I know that you're, it sounds like you're going to have Richard Antoine on as a guest fairly soon. He's done surveys over the years showing that roughly 80% of those independent contractors wish to remain as independent contractors. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so we're pushing back against that at the state level in California. Um, we've been participating in hearings of the California Advisory Committee on Civil Rights to the U.S. National uh, Commission on Civil Rights, um, examining the impact of AB5 on civil rights in California. AB5 is the bill that uh, was passed in California mm -hmm. that makes makes it very difficult to be an independent contractor. We fought for exemptions and eventually got a good exemption for translators and a not so great exemption for interpreters. Right. Um, so we, you know, we're taking part in that. There are um, hearings of the U.S. Department of Labor coming up on a proposed rule that would again make make it hard to classify people as independent contractors under one of the fifteen different federal laws that govern employee employer and contractor um, relationships. Wow. So yes, we're, mm -hmm. we're very active in that. Um, mm -hmm. And then that's sort of the, the, the fighting back part. Yeah. Right. The fighting force for something is we're fighting, we're, we're advocating for funding for language access. So language access in the United States is um, it's a civil rights requirement under title six, the civil rights act of 1964. Yep. It is a requirement under the pa the patient protect patient protection and affordable care act also known as Obamacare, Section 1557. Anybody who gets basically any health care in the U.S. Is and needs language access is supposed to get the language access. Right. Mm -hmm. um, anybody who gets any kind of service from any federally funded program, and almost every municipal and state program receives federal funding, um, is required to have language access provided at no cost. problem mm -hmm. is there's no funding mm -hmm. for that language access. And mm -hmm. so that becomes yeah. um, an issue of compliance. Like, you know, we're risk management on the part of the service provider. Are we Are we in compliance with federal rules and regulations and federal laws right. um, versus actual customer service and actual you know investment in your service? And it often ends up in overhead. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, as business owners, we all know that you minimize your overhead, right. you know, because overhead doesn't, overhead's just overhead. Mm -hmm. You're not making money on it. Right. Um, so what we're advocating for is something called the Health Equity and Accountability Act, which was introduced about it was introduced on April 26th, and uh, by a number of Democrats, and one of one of the provisions of that act, in fact, Title Three of that act, would radically improve language access in healthcare. It would require federal funding for language access in Medicare, Medicaid, and other federally funded or federally backed That's healthcare fabulous. plans. Yeah. It would require it would require private insurers to reimburse um, language access. It would require the creation of a billing code. For language access, all of these things that would, um, and you know, we work very closely with the broad coalition. In fact, I'm speaking to some of the coalition later today um, on on this bill to get these provisions in, and some of us have been working on it for about uh, 15 years. We yeah. won't. This won't pat won't pass in this Congress. I don't think. Mm. Maybe we'll get pieces of it passed through mm. the appropriations bills for fiscal 23 coming up. Mm. But mm -hmm. the fact that we're having a this discussion at a high level in Congress for the first time since Obamacare was crafted, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is now more than 10 years ago, mm -hmm. is really critical. Yes. So that eventually, in the next, you know, the next five years or so, we have a pretty mm -hmm. good shot of getting um, language access paid for. Right. And that, I think, will be a game changer for oh, the gosh, language yeah. access in healthcare. Definitely. Yeah. You know, one of the things we found out in the pandemic, in March, late March, early April of 2020, the CDC issued binding um, guidance, mm. uh, regulation, I guess, an emergency, that if you, you couldn't bring anybody with you to the doctor's appointment mm -hmm. unless you needed it for mobility assistance, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so all of a sudden, our OPI vendors uh, in, you know, companies like LanguageLine, mm-hmm. I'm not saying this at a but companies like LanguageLine mm-hmm. and Certified mm-hmm. reported a spike mm-hmm. in their billing from major healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. And the reason was the family and friends plan for language access no longer worked. Right. And it, it was a tacit admission by some fairly large and fairly sophisticated healthcare systems that, yeah, we were, we were skating, yep. you know, yep. we're using the family and friends plan, yep. even though, even though the law says we're not supposed yep. to do it, even though the regulations say we're not supposed to do it, except in right. utterly exigent right. circumstances. And with the kinds of SLAs that our, our OPI providers have, there's no excuse for an exigent no. circumstance. You know, if, if we, no. if we can provide 300 languages to you in 90 seconds, there's no excuse to use, exactly. you know, mm-hmm. the, the the granddaughter to interpret for abuelita in the emergency exactly. okay. and 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 let's you just know. be clear also that granddaughter doesn't have the context uh you know and the capacity to explain that where these professional interpreters in the right. opi community right. do so yeah or you know bringing you know um mateus from down the block yeah to do exactly your interpreting and paying paying him under the table and he's doing yep. that for everybody and in the Polish neighborhood in Baltimore, and this actually happened oh, a few years back. Oh, man. You know, and their language access wasn't free. No, you know? no. Um, so, so we know that, that that it's still a challenge, and just just making this reimbursable mm-hmm. will vastly increase the availability right. of language access. Right. And in fact, that's the biggest pushback mm-hmm. that we're getting mm-hmm. at the federal level. Like, if we make if we make this available, people will want it, and it will cost more. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Don't even oh, get me started. Don't is, even get me started on what? that. That's so hypocritical. Completely. But it, I think it would make a big, big. Well, yeah. It's, it's just government works in its own ways. Um, but it's also, I think, would make lives a lot better for companies and interpreters. If there's, if, you know, we're not fighting hospitals and healthcare systems and state agencies to give us a slightly larger chunk of a relatively small amount of money. If there's more money on the table, right. You know, ideally, that will end up in the pockets of the workforce and the pockets of the companies. Yeah, you know? and that's the part that I don't think people understand because that was, you know, come some of my follow-up questions. You've already addressed them about uh, what people don't get about language advocacy, and you've just covered that. And and what we want people to know more in our industry, uh, you know, specifically to this matter, because we have uh, constitutional rights, but aside from that. Going back to the empathy part of it, those of us who are in this industry, we know that to make this world a better place, we have to have access to language. We have to provide this for people because if we don't, you know, we're, we're going to end up in this horrible situation where there's more lawsuits are going to happen and it's going to cost more money for hospitals to pay out, but in a different manner, whereas they could completely cut that part out of it by avoiding those lawsuits and having people actually get the care and, and the, uh, you know, the needs met in the moment by professionals and, and have also, I think, finally, the American people recognize our industry as a professional industry, because I think that's something that people don't, don't get, um, hands down. They just don't. And unless you're working in the industry, they don't, they don't get it. To the extent that it's visible, it's been very, actually very, we've been very visible during COVID with all of the state governors giving briefings with um, an ASL interpreter. So yeah. that, that's been actually kind of good for consciousness raising. Right. But, you know, to the extent that the average person thinks about it, they, they conflate translation and interpreting. And I've long since given up. I'm sorry to every <laughs> translator and interpreter out there. And I'm one of both. You know, long since given up the effort to try to educate on that. It's just, uh, you know, they're yeah. going to complete that. And in a lot of languages, like in Russian, it's one word. Oh, okay. didn't um, know that. Yeah, it's usni pirivod, oral oral interpretation translation. Usni pirivod versus pismini pirivod, okay. written. Oral versus written. And you see pirivod chic is one word, covers everything. Or they think of uh, the, the interpreter with Nicole Kidman. It's like, oh, yeah. yep, yep. Uh, it's not quite like that. Um, <laughs> I, I do not look like any of the interpreters in that uh, <laughs> film. And I don't live, never live a lifestyle like theirs. You know. I know. Oh but, my God. Wouldn't that be nice though? <laughs> yeah. Except the part where she was trying to get, they were trying to kill her. That, that wouldn't be a good part. <laughs> that wouldn't be a good part. Some espionage thing. You know, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, listen, What's Hey, what's the Italian here? What's traditory, yep. tra- traditory, traditory, right? Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. Translator, traitor. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, well, I'm good. Okay. I'm, first of all, you know me, I'm a big fan. So I, I love Bill that you, I love listening to you talk. I love listening to you educate. It's, it's just so evident how passionate you are and how much you've spent time. Um, this is not just something that you're just like thrown off, you know, out of, out of your voice. Like you think about these things. It's you, we can tell. Yes. So I want to go more now a little bit for my last couple of questions to Bill the person. So I have a, a couple of fun questions for you. So this one is, if you are, you have one book in the rest of your life that you get to take with you and bring along and you don't get any other books, which book and in what language and why? One book. One book. That's not fair. I know. <laughs> um, one book. Um, right now it's um, on Tailana, um, The Islandman by Thomas Crowan. It's an okay. Irish book, but that's only because I'm learning Irish. Um, if you take that out, I'm cheating here. It'd probably be uh, Masari Margarita by Bulgakov. It's a okay. Russian book, and it's a satire of early 20th century culture in every imaginable way. I mean, it takes on communism and capitalism and fascism in very funny, lyrical ways. But, uh, yeah, it's one book. That's hard. Those are some good books there, <laughs> right there. Hard. No, that's totally fine. No, that's that's yeah. great. Okay. And then also what do you do for fun? Reading, traveling. What do you what do you do? Well, I mean, used to travel, but but that's obviously been harder and, and now I'm like way more conscious of um you know, the climate change yeah. impact yeah. of that. Yeah. So like like we're much more conscious about that in our family mm -hmm. travels. Um so it, I, that's not now done with some guilt. Right? <laughs> yep, I get it. Um, and obviously not not very much in the last uh, mm -hmm, two mm -hmm. years. What do I do for fun? I do a lot of reading. I read um, Actualité, which is a Montreal-based monthly. Things like New Yorker. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've been reading a lot of biographies of U.S. Grant, mm -hmm. just just as a kind of corrective for all the stuff that's happening mm -hmm, in the country. Mm -hmm. Just trying to go back to the narrative. Um, where the right side, the correct side won the Civil War. I'm doing a lot of Irish. That's good, though. Right. Learn languages yeah, for fun. Awesome. You know? That's great, though. I mean, I don't think that that's a, let's, I don't, I'm not expecting you to say, well, I go mountain climbing or anything like that. I mean, I, I feel like all of us who are. are well, I used to do that. I used to do that. But no. <laughs> yeah, I used to do mountain I gave up rock climbing when I started to have a family because, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, I get that. It's uh, what's the last thing that goes through a rock climber's mind is yeah. he falls. Yeah. His knees. Right. Well, yeah. that's like why Michael, you know, my husband, that's an old, that's an old one. That's not original. No, no, it, but it's, but it's to the point because, uh, because Michael has always said he wanted to go skydiving and I'm like, you're not going skydiving. You can go skydiving when you have like maybe three years left. Like he's like, well, he's all, well, see, George senior did it. I'm like, yeah, he was like, what? 90. I'm like, mm -hmm. sure, go when you're 90. I, I could accept that, you know, because that means I'm going to be 93, you know. But uh, don't don't do it now, please don't do it now. Uh, but yeah, I I get that, and I'm really actually glad you mentioned about the impact of travel uh, with climate change because I, that's another whole other conversation that we may be doing a podcast on because it's it's so incredibly important for people to understand that and. Right now, we're seeing uh, post-COVID all of the re just amazing amount of mobility that's happening in the you know mm -hmm. the airlines that they're they're actually canceling flights because there's just not enough staff mm -hmm. to work yeah. everything. And then uh, I read something where they were talking about uh, smaller airlines were going to start doing one pilot man flights and i'm like what no i'm not going on that yeah. and and then you know you're dumping everything out of your uh out of the air into the into the ground and, and the ocean and uh and just the heat that it's causing you know with all of um, impact of immediate uh transportation running again that was I, I liked it. I personally, I know this is horrible, but I know the, the pandemic was horrible for many reasons, but I love the fact that things were growing again and you could see Los Angeles without smog, yeah. <laughs> you know, blue skies, blue skies yeah. everywhere. So yeah, it's, it's too, it's, it is a definitely, I agree with you. It's a guilty pleasure now to do heavy travel. Um, but uh, yeah, that's why I think I'm going to focus on traveling. I'm going to try doing the Camino, the Santiago Bill. So if you know, if I'm gone for weeks at a time, you know that's where I'm at. 
Well, uh, we do have one more question. Producer Lauren wants to know, her burning desire to know, what do you think is going to be the future? Actually, producer Lauren, come over to my microphone and just, just put it in here for him. Here, I'm going to just pass my mic to her. Hello, Bill. Hi. Hi. Um, I just have a question about what do you think um, all of this means for the future of language advocacy? How do you see this? And the next, maybe, let's say, 10 years from now, what do you think is going to be the main focus if it's continuing to build access to language advocacy? Um, I know there's a lot of hot topics right now that we never foresaw, and we can't really see the future. We don't have a crystal ball, but just with your um, knowledge in this field, I'm really curious about if you've thought about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what does this look like? Sure. So what will things look like in 10 years? Um, I'm sure we'll see some technological advances that will look completely obvious in retrospect that will increase our productivity and, and our ability to reach new audiences. Um, I expect we will see some advances, in fact, in the application of um, computational linguistics, machine mm -hmm. translation, et cetera, to the processing of spoken text. Um, we're already starting to see this with some of the automatic uh, captioning mm -hmm. services. Um, whether that will ch really change, say, language access for healthcare is um, a very much an open question. Um, I would like to see us bring about funding for language right. access in the states, and um, and I'd also like to see, and this is a you know part of the reason we have an ALC and Adala and other organizations, I'd like to see companies. Um, large enterprises, whether it's a, a private sector, public sector, um, do a better job of integrating language and culture up front into the design and, and delivery of their products and services rather than dealing with, you know, mm -hmm. you know ad hoc, post facto, downstream. So, um, wow. The other the point being that um, in terms of things, changes we might be able to affect is funding for language access for sure in the states. And um, raising awareness for enterprise-level clients of ours, with the private or public sector, that they need to integrate mm -hmm. language and culture into the design and delivery of their products and services, rather than deal with it as a downstream commodity. And we need to change that. You're back. You're back. I'm back. Downstream commodity. Uh, my my Wi-Fi is. Yeah, we don't want we don't want to be a downstream commodity. So that's that. I won't belabor it because. Um, my Wi-Fi is not cooperating. I suspect I've got a kid in, indoors who's doing Minecraft ah, right now. And okay. does not understand that the way that we pay the bills that allow her to play <laughs> Minecraft is that we need the Wi-Fi. So. All right. Well, I will say that, um, you know, that that's, that's a technology issue that we all face, regardless if we're in the language industry yep. or not. And I completely empathize with that. I've been there, done that. But uh, I just wanted to thank you again for being our first ever guest on on translate this and i i just it's been a pleasure and it and it continues to be a pleasure every time i get to speak with you and uh, you know please uh we'll go ahead and and of course want you to let other people comment on this because i know that you have a big fan base so we're hoping that that all of our listeners out there who are unaware of our guest uh, we will put our information up on our site uh, and how to directly um, affect change with him. If you are a language service company, uh, we will give you an ALC email that you can directly email to Bill and ask him questions about the work he's doing and perhaps help join the fight um, and the support that our industry needs. And uh, other than that, Bill, I promise I won't put your personal stuff up there. So <laughs> we won't do that. Well, <laughs> I'd like to thank you guys for having me on. It's a tremendous honor, and um, it's been great fun. Thank, thank you very you, much. Bill. It's been very enlightening. Thank okay. you. And we'll see you at the summit. Yep. See you soon. Okay. Thanks, Take Bill. Care. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. So, Richard, uh, like I said, I knew you were going to love our first guest. Yeah. Um, uh, it was incredible. I mean, yeah. Uh, the knowledge the activity, the, the direct direction he's going, the, right. um, the drive, it's like and very impressive. Right. Very impressive. I mean, he's, let's let's put it this way. He would be successful in any industry he went yeah. in. He obviously is an intelligent yeah. being. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, I think for our listeners to understand that it takes a very special person mm -hmm. to also uh, do this, but to also what he said, more people need to be doing and advocating and, and creating companies and, and creating enterprise that support language advocacy and, and access to language. Yeah. It needs to be built on the, on the beginning side mm -hmm. and not be thought of as an afterthought. Right. Because you know how yeah. that that works, right? Mm -hmm. And and I want to. <laughs> I know what an afterthought is. Uh, yeah, I kind of felt like that in public education for a long time. Right, that's what I'm talking about. And and I'm sure that some of your high school students, mm -hmm. you probably know that they were interpreting for their families when they shouldn't yeah. have been. Yeah, yeah. see it all the time. Right, yeah. right. And and how many times have you been called into a principal's office to interpret for a family? Um, Too I just many. Thought it was part of my job. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, oh, grab that person. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. we've all been there. Yeah. Grab the language teacher. Mm -hmm. They, they know how to say that. Right. They know how to speak that language. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it's it's fascinating. But you know, I had never heard his story on how he uh, arrived into this the industry. So that was that was really yeah. fun for me. It's really, it's really cool to hear his background. Yeah. And to know where his drive came from. Right. I mean. I just like the human side of things. So me too. I like hearing about it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. And that's great. And and again, a fellow TCK. Mm -hmm. So yeah, another. Yeah. That's another one I'm right just there. TCK. I know. You're TCK. I know. How many? I know. How many times are we gonna have people right. and then we're just gonna be totally in that mindset? Oh my God, you're a TCK. We have yeah. to tell you this. And they're gonna be like, what? What is that? Do yeah. I have a disease? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has right. been another episode of Translate. This. This with Richard and Melissa. Enjoy, you guys out there. Yeah, have a great one. Until next time, you can find us on social media at translatethis-podcast.com and translate this underscore podcast on Instagram and translate this underscore P at Twitter and translate this podcast on Facebook. I memorized now. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Peace out, people. All right. Take care. Thank you.